Women's Work is a special podcast production from Boise State Public Radio and the Mountain West News Bureau. This episode was recorded on the ancestral lands of the Wadatakanua, seaweed eater band of northern Paiute people, and also within the boundaries of the former 1.8 million acre Malheur Reservation. The Wadataka people were created here and are related to the land, minerals, birds, plants, and animals of this ecosystem. Now known as the Burns Paiute tribe, they continue to carry out the sacred reciprocal relationships with all the other indigenous beings of this landscape. Rachel Bobian is out checking cows, bumping through her pasture in her 1986 Ford flatbed pickup when she spots an escaped calf on the other side of the fence, heading toward the highway, and she hits the gas. Come on, buddy, just dive through there. We pull up to the fence line, and Rachel gets out and ducks between the barbed wire toward the road. So there's a little black, I guess, calf that got under the fence somehow or got through it and is on a busy freeway. And um, somebody just pulled over their pickup truck and they're trying to help push the calf back through the barbed wire, you know, like, so he runs, you know, runs through it because they can fit through, you know, like their moms can't. But you can hear how fast the cars are going on this road. And so if you, you know, calves are skittish and if he just runs the wrong way, it could get hit. So and Rachel's just calmly walking up to him and moving around toward the road to kind of keep him from running toward the road and push him toward the fence. Looks like he's trying. Yeah, he's through. Back to his mama. That one better than it could have. <laughs> Thank goodness for nice neighbors. Where were we? <laughs> April, the time of year when Rachel's cows give birth, just as the rivers are flowing full of snowmelt from the surrounding mountains. This year, the calves are coming, but not the water. There's been a drought across much of the West the past few years. Record-breaking low snowpack in the mountains, wells and irrigation ditches running dry. That's meant brown, dusty fields, high prices on hay, and some hard questions about what it means to keep a community together as the water runs out and tensions rise. Rachel's no stranger to navigating conflict in her community. She's been here before. I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is Women's Work, stories about the changing face of ranching in the West. Rachel and her husband, Kurt, raise cows on 2,000 acres in southeastern Oregon, not far from the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. They grow their own hay using flood irrigation. Now, flood irrigation is one of the oldest and least efficient ways to water crops. It dates back thousands of years in some parts of the world. And basically, it means diverting water out of a nearby river using a series of channels and culverts and then spreading it across your fields. So literally flooding your fields instead of using modern sprinklers that use less water and spread it more evenly. Environmentalists tend to hate flood irrigation, but as things get drier and wetland habitat disappears across the West, this outdated method of watering fields 
is providing some of the last best habitat for birds and other creatures who rely on wetlands to survive. Rachel turns the truck and we cross over a culvert and into another huge low-lying hayfield. The grass around us is stunted and brown, and she furrows her brow as she looks out the window. We shouldn't be able to drive out here, but right now we're kind of kicking up dust. Usually by this time of year, Rachel says this field would be flooded and filled with shoots of new green grass. Yeah, so this, if we, on a good water year, this water would come up and it just fills this slough and just covers out, clear out across there. And now there's nothing. On a good year, when there's plenty of snowmelt and spring rain, Rachel and Kurt can grow and store enough hay to last them two years. Well, it's been almost two years since they had a good year. This is the second year where the water in the Sylvies River, which flows from the nearby mountains and empties into Malheur Lake, has been too low to irrigate their fields. They'll have to dip into their savings to buy hay to feed their cows. And hay prices are high right now. And then how many times can you do that before you can't afford to pay your loans back and you're just out of business? So one would hope this, this doesn't, you know, we get another good year next year because three years, we've done that once before since we've started and it, it's scary, it's tough. But if Rachel can't flood irrigate her fields, it won't just be her cows and her bank account that suffer. Every year, in the spring and fall, thousands of birds, hundreds of different species, stop over here in the Harney Basin to rest and refuel on their long migrations from Central and South America to the far reaches of the Northern Hemisphere. And guess where they're stopping? Guess where they're finding that critical wetland habitat? Flooded fields like Rachel's. Okay, so I was pretty skeptical when I heard that. Flood irrigation is not winning any awards for water efficiency, that's for sure. But from a wildlife habitat standpoint, it's a good thing. I needed to see this firsthand. So I met up with someone who knows yeah. birds. Nice to meet you in person. Yeah, how are you? I'm great. This is a great, beautiful drive over from uh, Boise this morning. Holy cow. Teresa Wicks is with the Audubon Society of Portland, but she lives out here in Harney County. She took me to some fields a mile or so from Rachel's place. And these fields are closer to the main stem of the river, so they were flooded at the time, unlike Rachel's. And the lush green was a striking contrast to Rachel's brown. There's actually a pair of cranes right out there. Really? Yeah. Teresa spots some sandhill cranes at the edge of the field, standing in ankle-deep water as she parks her Subaru. Those are geese. Those are not cranes. No. The Canada geese were making more noise than the distant cranes when we got out of the car. So the sandhills are just out. I'll get my scope out. But they're just out foraging together, so they're probably a pair. So they return to the same territories every year, and they're really long-lived. Um, well, and just to describe where we're standing, I mean, I'm looking around and I'm seeing, like, barbed wire fencing, a bunch of black Angus cows over there, um, and then just kind of, like, low, wet flooded fields. Yeah. Teresa's partly listening to me and partly staring through her scope. This is often a problem when interviewing birders. There it is. There's a black neck still calling as it's flying out across the water toward those geese. Oh, it's gonna land. So black neck stilts actually nest out in these shallow wet fields too. So this field is intentionally being flooded yep. from a, a nearby ditch yep. and it will grow hay for, for a local rancher. Yep. yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, so surface flood irrigation is something that in a lot of places people are trying to move away from because it, it tends to create conflict for fish. So if you're somewhere where you have like a salmon bearing stream and water is being diverted from that stream and, and people are using flood irrigation, the common um, belief for a long time was that we need to convert all of that to sprinkler. Now, when folks here say sprinkler, they're not talking about your typical garden sprinkler. They're talking giant, long-armed metal water dispensers that stretch across fields and are hooked up to a well in the center. They suck groundwater from deep beneath the surface and spread it more evenly and efficiently across the land, instead of taking water from a nearby river. So for the past few decades, people have put in a lot more sprinklers. The intentions were good, right? As things get drier, let's be more efficient about how we grow crops. Let's not waste water draining rivers and flooding fields like we did in the old days, when instead we can pump it up and sprinkle it exactly where we want it without a drop left to sit around. But what we realized is that when we do that, all of this habitat that you see in front of you wouldn't exist. And so the flood irrigation is a super important part, not only of producing the hay crop, but of creating habitat for these birds, many of whom, especially the northern pintail, have a much farther journey ahead of them before they're going to end up in their breeding territory. <laughs> the pintail ducks that stop here are traveling from their wintering grounds near the equator to the northern Alaskan tundra to breed. A lot of shorebirds out there. We stood on the side of the road, and Teresa identified bird after bird that I had never seen or heard before. Actually, if you look in the scope right now, you can see the willet that's singing. We get back in the car and head to another flooded field. This one is full of white geese, rosses and snow geese, they're called. Counting all of these birds in this field, there's probably 6,000 to 8,000 birds in here right now. These geese are on their way to the Arctic tundra too, but they've taken a pit stop here to rest and eat the green shoots of grass that are starting to come up beneath the surface of the shallow waters in this flooded field. I love that there are ring-billed gulls in here. Teresa tells me primo bird real estate like this is getting harder to come by. As we lose wetlands in other places, the birds are forced to you know, either migrate farther or shift where they're migrating to, and, and that increases the importance of places like the Sylvie's floodplain and these relationships with ranchers and birds. It's something that I think about a lot when I'm out here because there are um, a lot of species that have become really dependent on the way that we manage the landscape. Do we need ranchers to keep these birds around? I mean, I think so, yeah. I think that it's a really important relationship that has been created in the Harney Basin. It is very specific. Um, birds, land, cows, ranchers, right? But there's another layer to this relationship beyond the ranchers and the birds here in Harney County. Every year, thousands of birders from all over the world follow the birds to Harney County for the annual Migratory Bird Festival. Teresa is one of the festival organizers. And so, it turns out, is Rachel Bobian. During the bird festival, Rachel takes time away from her cows to help organize a tour of local ranches for birders. Even though she thinks birders themselves are a pretty odd species. Like I say, I don't, I don't bird, I don't really relate to birders. I know like three species of birds on a good day. Um, and I love seeing the birds. I love how, you know, when they come in, it's a sign of spring. and. 
but the whole, the festival's just really neat. There's so many people that come. Rachel loves organizing the tour. She works with other ranchers to do a beef tasting and shares stories from the local ranching community with the visiting birders, many of whom are often from more liberal and urban parts of the region. I think Rachel genuinely welcomes the conversations that the bird festival creates. She's a connector. Rachel works a day job, ranches with her husband, and raises their two daughters. But she still finds time to volunteer for several different groups and committees. I think she likes bridging different worlds, walking between groups that can sometimes be at odds. But that hasn't always been easy. The breaking news in Oregon, the weeks-long standoff between armed anti-government protesters and law enforcement turning deadly overnight. The leader in 2016, a group of, of anti-government extremists occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge outside of Burns. It was all over the national news for weeks. Journalists descended on the community, and things were tense. At the time of the occupation, Rachel was working for the Bureau of Land Management. She was in sort of a regulatory role, managing ranchers and their grazing allotments on federal lands at a time when ranchers like the Bundys were actively fighting what they perceived as government overreach. It was days I was, it was confusing, I guess. I wasn't sure, like, should I be calling myself a fed in this situation? Do I call myself a rancher in this situation? You know, what are, what are people looking at me as? Rachel and others I met here said the media coverage made the tensions worse. Journalists painted a picture of her community as anti-government and hostile to federal employees. But the extremists who occupied the nearby refuge weren't actually from Burns. They took on the cause of a couple of local ranchers. But Rachel said those guys don't represent the ranching community she knows. And as a federal employee, she never felt unsafe here. It's hard to explain to people that that wasn't ever... We had concerns with those people that came in from the outside, those extremists, um, but we were never concerned with our local ranchers or our permittees at the BLM. I had BLM permittees come to my house and say, hey, if let us know if you need anything during all this. So, I mean, that was never, we've got a really good, really good people in this community. The occupation was a traumatic event for this community an eruption of violence and hatred that exposed political and ideological divisions in what was an otherwise pretty quiet corner of the world. Ranchers themselves were divided. Some sympathized with the occupiers, though they didn't support the violence, and others did not and wanted to maintain a productive relationship with government employees around public land use. Rachel said some folks stopped speaking to one another altogether. And long after the news cycle moved on, there were deep wounds, broken trust, and a lot of healing that needed to be done. So Rachel got to work, reconnecting people, just like she did with birders and ranchers at the bird festival. She helped organize a barbecue after the occupation was over, and local ranchers provided the beef, and they invited federal employees and local law enforcement as a way to bring everybody back together. It was at the fairgrounds at the Memorial Building, which is a huge building where lots of events are hosted. She said she's never been so nervous before throwing a party in her life. I almost didn't want to go when it all came together. I wasn't sure what to expect. The day came and the pickup truck started pulling in. People brought side dishes, potluck style. Families, kids, cowboy hats, people of all ages. And it was packed. It was packed. It was full beef, you know, full works. And it was packed and everybody was there. People were talking, shaking hands, laughing, just 
breaking bread together and trying to start over. Rachel said she heaved a huge sigh of relief. A reporter tried to enter and was turned away. This was a gathering just for this community to heal. And that healing continued into the spring with the help of migratory birds. Rachel organized the ranch tour again for the annual Migratory Bird Festival a few months after the occupation ended. And she said the response blew her away. We actually filled a school bus for that tour, the ranch tour with uh, you know out-of-towners. Most, if not all of them, said they were here to support the ranchers or support Harney County, you know. That was a really cool bird festival. Um, I gotta say, in researching this series, it became clear to me how much of this kind of relationship-building work is done by the women in ranching communities. They're the glue. They cook dinner for the sick, help out when new babies arrive, organize potlucks and fundraisers, join committees, whether it's the Cattle Women's Association or the 4-H Club or the Bird Festival. And this is not to say men aren't a part of this, of course. But as one old cowboy told me, if you want to get anything done in a ranching community, talk to the women. You want to ride in the middle, Mesa? Where are you going to sit? Um, I'll sit on the outside. Okay. On my last night at the Bobians Ranch, Rachel and her nine-year-old daughter, Mesa, take me out to feed cows. I drove it with the gas pedal yesterday. She hooks the old Ford up to the hay trailer, and Mesa climbs up and back to start throwing hay to the cows as Rachel drives slowly around the field. <laughs> okay, Mesa, do you have your knife? Then give it to me. Okay, well, yeah. This is most nights for Rachel. Feeding cows, feeding kids, helping with homework, then out for a committee meeting of one kind or another. What'd she say? Usually with other women who are juggling similar loads. You went the wrong way. And that kind of community connecting work may be even more needed in the years ahead, particularly as things get drier and tensions rise around water scarcity. You driving? Yeah. <laughs> This one! A few years ago, Rachel joined the Harney County Watershed Council. It's a group that's trying to help everyone here get the water they need and use it more efficiently. The saying is, um, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, and that's not a joke. <laughs> it's, it's right, you know, water's short. Sometimes, Rachel told me, this work feels hopeless because the truth is, there's just less water to go around, and no amount of talking about it or breaking bread together is going to change that. In much of the West, snowpack is declining, temperatures are warming, and groundwater is being sucked out at an unsustainable rate. In fact, this basin is over-allocated by 30%, meaning too much water is being taken out each year. It's like a bank account. You can overdraft it for a certain amount of time, and then your debts come due. Last spring, some wells and pivot sprinklers went dry, and some ranches, including Rachel's, had their irrigation water shut off altogether. Things may have to change, and flood irrigation, the way Rachel does it, may not be an option anymore. That will likely be a problem for ranchers and birds alike. It's scary, because we are getting more drier years, and it changes 
the plants, the type of plants that, that are growing, that, you know, the weeds come in a little easier because weeds can grow anywhere, right? And so from a beef production side, that's tough because we need that to feed the cows. From a, you know, a, the birder standpoint, that could that could change. The birds don't want to come hang out in a napweed field. They want to come hang out in these meadows and that's scary because and what do you what do you do what do you do about it I can't produce snow I can't flood irrigate at the snap of my fingers you know so yeah during my time with her I watched Rachel quietly and steadily move through her work reddish blonde hair in a tight ponytail pale skin pursed lips Rachel's worked so hard over recent years, through the Malheur Wildlife Occupation and with each passing bird festival, to hold her community together in small ways, to keep bringing people from different factions to the table. Now, in the middle of a water crisis, she'll keep trying to do that, and praying for rain, both for herself and her community. There's always something that's not going quite right or is, you know, potentially coming up that's scary or, and you just gotta look, look at the good pieces and hope for the best. And we do it because we love it, not because we're getting rich off of it. I can tell Rachel's tired and spread thin, but there's a sturdiness to her, or maybe a stubbornness. And I know she's gonna keep going. Next episode, we're heading to South Dakota to meet Kelsey Scott. She's raising grass-fed beef on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, and she's selling her beef primarily to tribal members. I get chills up my spine to know that the animals get to live out such a just life that they're still nourishing community members after they're gone. Women's work is edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound design is by Liza Yeager. Art for the series is by Katie Michael. And a special thank you to Diane Tiemann for recording the land acknowledgement you heard at the very top of this episode. She's the director of the Culture and Heritage Department for the Burns Paiute Tribe. <laughs>